outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. Hey, Loyal Legion, what the fuck is up? It's the podcast from outer space. Your boy Rob Scott. We got Adam Narlock in the house tonight, a.k.a. Teabag. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. And as always, it's Ryan Scott. Hello, everybody out there. And uh, what is this, guys? Week three of quarantine that we're on now? Anyone? I don't know what week it is. You don't know what week it is. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) fuck it. We'll get right into it. We're going uh, Watchmen tonight. Now we're going there. Yeah, we're going there. Now we're gonna th- go watch men. <laughs> this is gonna be uh, it's Ryan's favorite thing again. This is a little division. What what are we thinking? A little of, division. This, this guy ain't a fucking math test, brother. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Rob over here, not a big fan of the content afoot. That's false. I'm a fan of the okay. uh, comic. Not a fan okay. of the author of the comic. How about we'll just say that? Okay, now that is surprising, and and we're gonna get into all of that. I mean. First off, how's everybody's quarantine going? How we doing uh locked up in our in our houses in our homes? Um, you know, what are we doing? What do we got? Well, I'll tell you one thing, this fucking Paloma that I picked up today is just doing it for me right now. So Rob I don't know if you're feeling the same way, but Rob's um he's switching to alcohol. He's becoming an alcoholic. Oh, oh. <laughs> Wouldn't say that, but I got water right here too. I'm staying hydrated. Okay. And the gallon of water. Yes. He is also becoming a bodybuilder. Got to try new things, you know? Only so much you guys can do with uh, three hots and a cot every day. Adam, how are you doing over there? Yeah. How locked up with a bunch of, you know, locked up with a bunch of homeless bums I'm watching men for real. It's getting weird, a little spooky out here. What is Teabag doing to keep his mind um, occupado? Yeah. Teabag was doing school stuff and working on some designs and skateboarding. And then yesterday broke his toe. And I know I sound like a little bitch here, but that shit hurts, man. You broke your toe? I thought it was just the toenail. No, yeah, like the nail like split. Like, yeah, it's gross, dude. Right, dog, hot boy. What are you doing to get by? Now, you know, I've been, bald. I've been reading. Uh, Shaving wh- hair? Well, work's as busy as ever. I did shave my head completely bald. Thought it'd be fun. And I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of research for these podcasts. And, uh, you know, we figure, speaking of quarantine and, you know, the, the end times or the end is nigh, as they say, switch pace a little bit, you know? Um, go away from the conspiracies. Uh, let's take your mind off some of the craziness uh, going on right now in the world with a good old-fashioned comic book. Or, as some may have it, a graphic novel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, specifically, we plan on taking your mind off of the end of the world by discussing a comic about the end of the world. Nice. Now, this one this is one that I personally have been waiting to get to for a while, uh, especially with everything going on. Uh, I figure this is as fitting as a time to get into The Watchmen. Uh, and even if you're not into comics, uh, the story of this comic, the content it tackles, even the minds behind it are all fascinating. And, and, you know, I hope this inspires you to pick up a copy and read it. 
Uh, I bet, you know, a lot of people out there in quarantine uh, looking for reading recommendations. Now, this one, only $14.99 on Amazon. So Mm -hmm. if you're so inclined, pick up a copy, read it. I mean, this is a truly a masterpiece. I can't recommend this one enough. Fucking steal, too, $14.99. Yeah, that's a great price for one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Now and, for those uh, Amazon, you're welcome for the free plug. Uh, whenever you want to sponsor us, just you know, holler at your boy. <laughs> yeah. Now for those of you that don't know, Watchmen was originally a 12 issue limited series published by DC Comics in 1986, and eventually collected in a single volume in 1987, and is widely considered to be one of the greatest achievements in comic book history. Uh, It is now one of the best-selling graphic novels of all time and the only graphic novel to be featured on Time Magazine's top 100 novels list. Now, what's the greatest graphic novel of all time? It's not Watchmen. Well, no, it's not. I'm not saying it. I'm saying it's one of the greatest. I mean, people have the opinion that this is the greatest of all time. Um, I mean, what's its competition is what I'm asking. That's what I'm getting at. I'm willing to bet Bone is on there. What else? What are, what are the graphic novels? Are there Mouse? What's Bone? It's like this ghost looking. It's like Casper and Elmer Fudd had a kid. <laughs> I have to check that out. Sounds interesting. I don't think. I don't think that's what it really is. That's what the guy looks like. Those are like the only two I can think of. Yeah, I'm gonna be honest. I don't really know that many. I feel like I should, but I don't. Oh, we here. We'll just Google it then. That's what I thought you were doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is the best graphic novel of all time? That's what a man wants to know. I mean, it's all this shit, dude. I don't really read many graphic <laughs> novels. It's a contract with God, blankets, uh, from hell. Never heard of it. Batman the Killing Joke. Mm. Mm. Boxers and Saints. Sounds cool. I mean, look it up. But the Time Magazine thing, this that was just um, 100 greatest novels of all time, and they had to make an exception and put Watchmen on there because it's just that goddamn good. Mm. Here's my question. If I go on Amazon and pay this $14.99, is it one graphic novel that contains all 12 of the issues? Or yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like broken up into chapters, we'll say. But it's collected okay. in a single volume. Uh, that's what I'm okay. Hey, that's that's pretty that is a steal, yeah. Now, speaking of our knowledge on graphic novels or lack thereof, <laughs> um, but I guess you know, this I, I feel like this is more in the realm of comics. While it is considered a graphic novel because it's like more grown up themes and content, it's a comic, you know, it was it was published by DC Comics and it's uh, you know, 12 issues that were each comics in their own right. But what were your first exposures? I mean, when did you guys hear about this? Uh, what do we got? Now, are we talking strictly about the comic? When did you first hear about Watchmen? I, I mean, yeah, just Watchmen. It, it could have been movie, comic. It could have been the new HBO show, or it could have been the this episode. No, it, it was uh, Dennis had got it on. He like rented it, probably from Blockbuster, the movie. And I walked in right in that epic sex scene, and that was my first exposure. Like, you know, we had that moment where, like, father and son were like, oh, man, this is going on right now. And I just had to watch the rest of the movie after that. So you walked in at the sex scene, so you didn't even see the full movie. No. 
And what did you think? Did you like the movie? Did you like the sex scene? I loved it. Who's the Who's the chick that plays the chick? Isn't it like <laughs> chick that plays the chick? <laughs> Malin Ackerman? Well, she's hot. Malin Ackerman. There's the boner of the month right there. Malin Ackerman. How would I went you back say and her that name? Scene today. Malin Ackerman. She's the chicken. She's Freak Show's wife in. Um, Did this guy Harold just say and Kumar? Fuck his wife. And Harold and Kumar. Yeah. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, yeah. Now, what? Now, what did you think? Did you see the movie and say, "Hey, man"? Did Dennis read the graphic novel, or Probably what? So, like, was is he a fan? Did you talk to him when we were doing this outline? Say, "Hey, what you know about Alan Moore?" Nah, I should have. You know, I, I could sit here and say, "Like, nah, he's not into that stuff," and then he'd probably surprise me and be like, "Oh yeah, I got a first edition copy or some shit like that." Unbelievable! You need to consult Dennis on this. Yeah, he lived in <laughs> Jolly Old for a while. He probably knows all about the guy. True. I'm, a, I'm good friends a fucking with wizard, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People know him. Now, how about you, Rob? Uh, probably when the movie first came out is when I first heard of it, and then I was like, what the hell is this? And I still didn't get around to reading it until we started doing this research. Okay. And now, I honestly haven't Have you read it, it, though? I read half okay. of it. Now, I think that was that, my question. That might be true for a lot of our generation. I think, you know who actually first introduced me to this one? I believe was Nick Laos. What a guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at high school. <laughs> Um, I can't, I can't remember if he had given me a copy or not, but I do remember reading it because we heard about the movie being made and we were like, you know, anything superheroes we were trying to get our hands on, but more or less the most, more obscure ones like Deadpool. We thought that was badass cause, oh shit, they need to make a movie about this cause he's actually cutting people's heads off and killing them. Um, Watchmen, obviously fucking badass. You know, that was around like 2007, 2008, which was perfect for my teen angst reading at the time. You know, I like Hal had given me Kurt Vonnegut, Jack Kerouac to read. I was reading Clockwork Orange, Fight Club, Anarchist Cookbook. I mean, all this fits in perfectly with those. And honestly, if I had to recommend one comic to people who want to start reading comics, this would probably be it. Really? Yeah, you know how you ever meet those people that are like, ah, you know, I, I wish I always, I wish I got into comics. I just don't know where to start. You know, there's so much content out there. Where do I begin? Where do I pick them up? What With do I the pick anti comic? Basically, yeah, exactly. I would give them this. I mean, this is fucking great, and it still holds up. I reread it like a year ago. Still badass as ever. I'm actually currently reading it. <laughs> Now this this goes without saying, but if you don't know the twist in this comic that's been out for thirty four years, we're obviously going to be spoiling it. Now is it pretty close to the movie? Because I've only seen the ending. Yeah, it's pretty close, and I mean we'll get there. Right. So you've only seen from the sex scene on. You didn't go back and rewatch. No, Not and like I said, I episode? went back and watched. I watched the sex scene today. Yeah, that's all I needed to watch. <laughs> today, <yeah. laughs> oh, that's today. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, as always, let us first dive into the minds of the main team responsible and find out how this whole thing came about. Now, as far as creators, I've got the top three. I mean, while there was editors and shit like that, um, the main guys are the colorist, who was John Higgins. Um, He was born in Walton, Liverpool, 1949. Dropped out of school at the age of 15. 
and he joins the jo- yes. jolly old army. Uh, now he came back home to Liverpool, and in 1971 he continues stud- to study art. Uh, 74, he qualified in technical illustration and got a job as a medical illustrator, which, you know, this was kind of cool because I didn't even think about this. The people that draw those like, um, like bodies with muscles on them or like vaginas and penises in the like medical (laughs) textbooks, you know, anatomy is what it's called. I believe people are actually (laughs) drawing that stuff. Like this guy, John Higgins. Dude, actually one of the guys that was in my uh, first ever drawing class that I took, his name's Pete. Shout out to Pete. Uh, He's actually a medical, I guess, artist, you would say. I don't know the correct term for it. Illustrator, medical illustrator. Yeah, it's badass. Mm. That's cool. So, 1975, he gets his first comic book art published in Brainstorm, and he actually drew the cover of 2000 AD, number 43 and 77. Got a picture right there for you guys. Oh, gnarly. And um, after he worked, he got like steady work at 2000 AD, and he joined what became known in the comic industry as the British Invasion in the mid-80s. Uh, this was associated with other guys like Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, uh, Grant Morrison. The Beatles. Not the Beatles. <laughs> uh, now, most notably, this was like that, but in the comics industry. I know, and I dude, think I was, I was actually, I was reading some article that was like, or I was watching an interview mm. with the artist, and he was saying the reason this happened was because like the big wigs at DC and Marvel were afraid that... Because we all we know these comics guys in the early age, they got screwed out of their work. They did like work for higher shit, and then they get up. They end up getting fucked over on the rights like twenty years later when these movies come out. You know, always do. And he was saying the reason this happened was because like Marvel and DC and and Image and the big comic books thought that uh, like a coup was going to happen, and the artists and writers were going to form a union. So they wanted to have like outside guys come in. So they started calling all these Brits. Mm. Now, some of Higgins' most notable work would be doing the coloring on Moore's Watchmen, and he also did the uh, coloring on Batman the Killing Joke. Another great episode of ours for you to check out. That would be our Batman episode, I believe. (laughs) Now, the Batwing, bitch. (laughs) <laughs> now, next up, we got the artist. Uh, this is Mr. Dave Gibbons. Uh, he was born in London on the 14th of April, 1949. Happy early birthday to this motherfucker. <clears throat> now, he began reading comic books at the age of seven and is a self-taught artist. Uh, he originally began a career as a building surveyor, but he hated it so much and eventually left to focus on his comics career Entering the comics industry in the UK as a letterer for IPC Media. Um, he also worked on 2000 AD before becoming the lead artist on Doctor Who magazine. And he was later, later discovered by Lynn Ween of Swamp Thing fame in 1982, brought over to DC Comics, and thus you have him eventually working his way into drawing The Watchmen. Now, the coup de gras, the Mac Daddy, the mastermind of this whole operation, was none other than the writer, Mr. Alan Moore himself. And as we'll find out, this is a lot. You know, this guy is a fucking maniac. Uh, he is responsible for a number of what are now revered as classics in the comic industry. 
And he has an impressive dossier and one hell of a life. So we'll kind of give you the highlight reel, uh, discuss some of the milestones in his life leading up to Watchmen, and even some post-Watchmen info so you get the whole perspective of just what a powerhouse this guy is and and how he views the world. Um, And, you know, a bit of a a controversial figure, we'll say, to say the least. Rob hates him, apparently. I don't hate the guy. That's a strong word, brother. Yeah, Rob is not (laughs) a big fan of his beliefs, but, I mean, we'll get to that, so... As we always do. As we always do. Now, (laughs) Alan Moore was born in Northampton, England... Is that is that correct, Northampton? <laughs> Just only breaking out the accent for the one word there, bud. Northampton, England. On the 18th of November, 1953, his family resided in an area known as the Burrows, which is, uh, you know, poverty, uh, impoverished. Is that the word I'm looking for? There you go. Poverty-stricken area, high levels of illiteracy. Um, this would be similar to what is referred to as the projects here in the USA. Now, he says that uh, growing up, he loved it, loved the people, loved the community, uh, and he didn't even know there was anything else. He didn't know life was different anywhere, which is uh, similar to Lexi. I guess she was watching the news and didn't realize that, like, there's third world countries. Like she didn't, re- <laughs> no, she was watching 90 day fiance. <laughs> she didn't realize that. She was watching 90 day fiance and didn't realize that like there's countries where people still have to like go to a well to get water or like do their laundry in the river. Or um, take a shit in a hole. <laughs> yeah. So more, you know, he's no different. He thought, hell, this is life and this is great. I love it. Uh, he began reading. Maybe you need to see what kind of comics Lexi can come up with. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's just going to be a powerhouse comic writer. <laughs> now, he begins uh, reading comic strips and really anything he could get his hands on at the age of five, and he became obsessed with mythology. Guy's a fucking wizard, apparently. Yeah, so obviously, you know, it's no secret. He's, <laughs> he's in the top of his class down in the uh, slums there, and eventually... He moves his way up to Northampton Grammar School. Uh, now, I believe, what is this, like a secondary school? Teabag, some of your family lived in Jolly Old. Uh, what is this, like a prep school? You're asking the wrong guy. Sounds like some hooked on phonics type of shit. Yeah, I don't understand the schooling in England, but I guess it's like 8th to 11th grade or something. Um, some t- Like a prep school almost. Did he get his grade 10? This is not Canada or Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> and um, now he goes to this prep school. And this is where he first comes in contact with middle and upper class kids. So he's no longer the uh, sharpest tool in the shed. Still isn't. And uh, right off the bat, he hates it. You know, he begins to lose interest in academia. Uh, and he develops the belief that there was a covert curriculum being taught that was designed to indoctrinate children with punctuality, obedience, and acceptance of monotony. I agree with that, and I still think that goes on today. Yeah, I mean, this guy's... Um, and you're teaching it to these kids. No, I try to mix <laughs> yeah. it up, but... You're part of that system, unless you're trying to I'm break trying to it fight f- the system, from dude. the inside. Yeah. Okay, so you're like Matthew Lillard in SLC Punk. Uh, I'm flattered. Yeah, that's a stretch. The only way we can, <laughs> the only way I can fight the system and be as punk as possible is to become a lawyer and take it down from the inside. That's kind of where you're getting at. 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, he's essentially think, thinking the same thing. You guys are being trained to be a fucking mindless drone. You guys need to wake up. This guy was woke as fuck at a very early age. And that's what led him down the path of wizardry like Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> now, he's basically saying fuck school like Waka Flocka. Did his little brother die? <laughs> little brother did not die, but he starts he starts to write his own poetry and essays. Uh, he creates his own little fanzine called Embryo, and um, a at, tribute to his little brother. Yeah, and around this time. <laughs> He also begins dealing LSD at school and is expelled in 1970. Now he's, he's, he's really trying to get people to wake up. <laughs> yeah. Now he's 17 at this point. Uh, the headmaster of the school even wrote letters to other schools telling them that Moore was a complete fuck up and he was a danger to the moral well-being of other students. And Moore, he was basically like, yeah, that's me. Uh, you know, that, that he's probably you right. I hate this guy. I love it. Yeah, I know. I love this guy. This, Alan Moore is very fascinating. This guy's a fucking loose cannon. You know, he's Dude, going I don't off the rails. I fucking rail. hate the guy. Stop saying that. <laughs> I just think he's a fucking pretentious asshole. Rob thinks he's pretentious. But well, that's probably, that probably in the outline. <laughs> watch an interview on the guy, dude. Now, more he would go. He would comment on. Uh, he would comment later in his life about his experiences with LSD, saying, "LSD was an incredible experience. Not that I'm recommending it for anyone else, but for me, at Hammond Home, the reality was not a fixed thing. The reality that we saw, but." Us every day was one reality, a valid one, but there was others, different perspectives where different things have meaning that was just as valid, that had a profound effect on me. So this is, he's like Aldous Huxley, you know, doors of perception. Or uh, Aldous Snow, whichever one you want to go with. Dropping a lot, Aldous Snow. This is, um, Dumb- get him to the Greek reference? Dumbledore. <laughs> Smoking a Jeffrey. Yeah, he's like Dumbledore and Hagrid rolled into one. <laughs> now he started, so he starts working odd jobs here and there until he um, he had enough. You know, he thought yeah, I was destined for something more. So he shifts his focus to more artistic endeavors. Um, so the first paid work were for some drawings that got printed in NME, which was a British music magazine, I guess, and around. Early 1980, he calls up his friend, who's been his friend since the age of 14, Mr. Steve Moore. Now, there's no relation. Um, he co-created, they co-create the character Axel Pressbutton, uh, who was a violent cyborg, a pretty badass. I was looking up some pictures and and some of these old drawings. Kind of reminds me of some like early. Like, you know the look and feel of like those old, like original Ninja Turtles comics? Mm. It's kind of like that mixed with like maybe a little bit of um, who's the gentleman that did Deadpool? Rob Liefeld. A little bit of that mixed in there. Um, Two other great episodes for you to check out if you haven't already. Yeah, so check that out. They So they do this character, Axel Press Button, for uh, some comics in Dark Star, which was another British music magazine. These were big at the time, I assume. And um, Steve Moore wrote the strip using the name Pedro Henry. And Alan Moore drew so un- just like that. 
<laughs> now, Alan Moore, he drew under the pseudonym of Kurt Weil. Mm. And this was a pun on the name of German composer Kurt Weil. <laughs> a pun? <laughs> well, yeah, so the, his is spelled C-U-R-T-V-I-L-E. The German guy was K-U-R-T-W-E-I-L-L. Ah. And I, and I believe I was looking up, like, you know the music guy, Kurt Weil? I do. The indie guy? Yeah, I have several of his records. So I guess his parents named him after this German guy, or maybe it was a coincidence. I couldn't, like, he didn't, t- that's, not, that's his real name. It's not a stage name. I thought maybe, oh, this guy is a big Alan Moore fan. Maybe he's doing a stage name. Or maybe he's just badass and doesn't have to change his name because he's not a bitch. Okay, that's, <laughs> now let's see, this is what I'm talking about. So, so he continues to publish a few works under the uh, Kurt Vile pseudonym. Uh, he also created a new comic strip known as Maxwell the Magic Cat in mm. the North Hans Post under the pseudonym of Jill DeRay. Now, this was a pun on the medieval child murderer, Jill DeRace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, spelled differently. Um and I guess he thought this would be like a, a sick joke um, because this guy was a fucking maniac, dude. This guy was like a medieval serial killer that was just murdering children and um, eventually got put to death. Now, so he publishes the comic um, Maxwell the Magic Cat. Probably was a witch. And this strip featured a sardonic talking cat named Maxwell and his human sidekick Norman Nesbitt among other cats and mice who made regular appearances and more extended the strip and more. So it's like a Tom and Jerry ripoff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically like, you know, itchy and scratchy, that type of shit, you know? Okay. <laughs> and, um, now more ended the strip after the host newspaper, the North Ants post, uh, ran a negative editorial on homosexuals in the community. So this guy, again, fairly progressive for that time in England. And um, Moore wanted to get away from freelance work. He wanted to get a more permanent strip. So he started submitting stories to 2000 AD's editor, Alan Grant. And while these initial submissions were rejected, he saw a lot of promise in Moore's work, later saying, This guy's a really fucking good writer. (laughs) So... So he loves Moore's work, and he's asking Moore to write some short stories for the Future Shock series, which was another part of 2000 AD. Um, He would advise Moore on improvements and eventually accepted many of his stories, and Moore also began writing stories for Doctor Who Weekly. Now, because he was constantly doing these short four or five-page stories where everything had to be done in a few pages... Moore recollects that this was the best possible education that he could have um, he could have gained in how to construct a story. Guilty as charged with the stories. <laughs> and this obviously paid off for the guy because he, he began to impress the editors and they decided to offer him the more permanent strip that he had been searching for. So aren't we all? So they give him what was what became Skiz. Uh, this was basically based on E.T., uh, the film, by Spielberg. Uh, and it was telling the story of an alien who crashes to Earth and is cared for by a teenager named Roxy. 
I thought that said shiz. No, I was like, man, these guys are that. way far ahead. That's skiz. Uh, now, another okay. series he produced for 2000 AD was DR and Quinch. Um, this was basically the tale of two alien teenagers, Waldo DR, which stood for Diminished Responsibility. Uh, this was like a scheming mastermind. And Ernest Errol Quinch, who was a big, giant, purple-skinned companion. And they basically Forrest Gump their way into Earth's history. Uh, Moore described it as a continuing the tradition of Dennis the Menace, but giving him thermonuclear capacity. So it's basically like two aliens fucking around like Laurel and Hardy uh, and, you know, getting into all kinds of mischief and stuff. Popping some Red Bulls is what it looks like from that pic. <laughs> yeah. <also> <laughs> drinking Red Bulls. Now, it wasn't until working for the monthly magazine Warrior that Moore would begin to go Super Saiyan. Uh, you know, he was initially given two ongoing strips in Warrior, uh, Marvel Man, which would later become Miracle Man, and V for Vendetta. Wait, what? Miracle Man? Yeah, they had to change the name because obviously Marvel, you know, they uh, got big. And they got Marvel Head. They didn't want to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he does Marvel Man and V for Vendetta here, uh, both of which debuted in Warrior's first issue, which was in March of 1982. Um, now, he won't, I won't get too much into V for Vendetta here, as that should be its own <clears> episode. Um, but, but shout out to Natalie Portman. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I mean, this was, you know, dystopian thriller set in the future of 1997, where um, Britain's government is fascist. They controls everything. Just like they're taught to. And they're basically opposed by a lone anarchist dressed in a Guy Fox costume who uses terrorism to topple the government. Uh, now, this has been regarded as some of Moore's best work and has maintained a cult following, which, of course, as Rob said, turned into the Hollywood film starring Natalie Portman, which Moore obviously hates. And The Mask has since been adopted by many movements like the Occupy and Anonymous people. Now, does Moore hate the movie or does he hate Natalie Portman or both? No, he hates the movie. Um, I mean, okay. we'll get into it. I think this is one of the reasons Rob finds him a bit pretentious, but um, we'll get into the whole like falling out and the Hollywood and then the controversy. I've saved that for the end, so we'll get there. All we'll, right. We'll get to it later in the outline. Don't worry, buddy. So he's working at Warrior. He's doing V for Vendetta. He's beginning to go Super Saiyan. Now, similar to Dave Gibbons, uh, DC Comics editor Lynn Wein hired Moore in 1983 to write on the saga of Swamp Thing. Yet another one of our episodes that I'm shamelessly plugging here. Yeah, check, check it out if you haven't already. <clears throat> yeah, we discussed a little bit on that episode. But um, so he writes a few things here and there for DC uh, before 1986 when he would begin the topic of today's episode Watchmen. So let's get into the origin, the characters, uh, and, you know, spoilers ahead, obviously. So the limited series, as it were, Watchmen, began in 1986, and this would be Moore's magnus opus, so to speak. 12 of 12. Uh, Very the, limited. Now, the story of Watchmen uh, depicts an alternate history imagining what the world would be like if costume heroes really existed since the 1940s, and their presence would change history 
so that the United States won the Vietnam War, Watergate break-in was never exposed, and in this history, this alternate history, by 1985, the country is edging toward World War III with the Soviet Union. Um, Freelance, costumed vigilantes have been outlawed, and most former superheroes are in retirement or working for the government. So that's essentially like the back flap. That's the pitch. Now, Moore and the artist Dave Gibbons wanted to create a kind of Cold War mystery in which the reality of a looming nuclear war threatens the world. And this was relevant because, you know, late 80s, while the Cold War was winding down, you know, you had David Hasselhoff, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He's wearing the light-up jacket. The wall's coming down. You know, the Cold War's winding down. But this was obviously still a huge part of the world's psyche at the time, this nuclear threat, you know? Like, Moore says that he wanted to write about power politics. Now, while Ronald Reagan was president at the time that he wrote Watchmen, he was worried that readers might not be into it if they thought he was attacking someone they sided with or looked up to. So that's why in Watchmen, we get a world where Nixon is in his fourth term. And this is because most people can agree that Nixon was a crook, Moore said. Um, He said the 80s were worrying and, you know, you had mutually assured destruction, voodoo economics, a culture of complacency. He says that he was writing about the times that he lived in. So what I'm hearing is the planets have a line once again. We've got another crook in office. We need to start writing a fucking comic book while the world's all in the same psyche being scared of this fucking virus, boys. I just, Ooh, trademark copyright. Hey, I said if you want to do a comic, I'll do the writing. You just got to do the drawings. Okay. Adam will be the colorist. <laughs> <laughs> Can't leave out that important job. I mean, I could do... I can do advertising on anything else. You're going to let me color. I can't even stay in the lines. I'm yeah, kidding. We'll dude. get you Adam out the there. Market, man. No, yeah, he'll be spinning a sign out there. <laughs> the end is nigh. <laughs> now, Watchmen originated from a story proposal that Moore submitted to DC, which featured superhero characters the company had recently acquired from Charlton Comics. Now, Moore's proposed story would have rendered many of the characters unusable for future stories. So the editor at the time, Dick Giordano. His name is uh, Dick Giordano. So he says, hey, love what you're doing here, Alan. Brilliant stuff. But why don't you just create some original characters instead? And That thus, sounds like a real dickhead. Well, that dickhead would go on to uh, change the course of comics. Because, I mean, who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have been as big of a hit if he had used these original characters. Um, but anywho, All right, it was a dick joke. Move on. <laughs> Edit it out. Anywho, oh, you're he, talking about dick. So he wasn't able to do that, and the characters of Watchmen were born. And still more or less based on existing characters, um, as this entire thing is basically a satire on the superhero in general. So the main characters, you got Adrian Veidt or Ozymandias. Okay. Now, he was based on Peter Cannon or Thunderbolt. Hit him with the motherfucking cannon. Got the side-by-side right there for you. Uh, You've got Daniel Dryberg, who was Night Owl 2. 
Uh, he was based on Blue Beetle. Uh, and, you know, I feel like a little bit of Batman in there. Now, why the two? Little Batman, little tick. Was yeah. his dad Night Owl 1? <laughs> Not his dad, but there was a Night Owl 1. Now, I thought you were halfway through the comic. You would have surely known this by now. It was just supposed to be a joke, dude. <laughs> <God damn it. laughs> uh, we got Edward Blake, the comedian who was based off the character Peacemaker. And I feel like there's also a little bit of Captain America. Um, you know, he's got the red, white, and blue shoulder pads. Now, while he is a more menacing character than Captain America, he's still, you know, big barrel-chested freedom fighter, you know? And okay. we got Dr. John Osterman, Dr. Manhattan, who is based off Captain Atom. And also, obviously, some Superman in there. Looks like Captain Planet. Looks like fucking Silver Surfer with a blue dick. Now... <laughs> 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 We all, yeah, and I guess there is a little bit of surfer, silver surfer element to him, you know. Put them side by side, dude. Yeah, I, yeah. Tell me you're the right. difference. I'm saying. Now we also dick and balls are just always out, which is kind of weird. Now we also got uh, Laurie Jaspejic, uh Silk Spectre Two, uh, based on Nightshade as well as DC's Black Canary and Phantom Lady. Um, so there's the side-by-side -side of all three of them. They come from a long legion of superheroes. That's why they're number two. Yes. And finally, we got Walter Joseph Kovacs, uh, also known as Rorschach, who was based on Steve Ditko's Mr. A. And Out of his, his favorite hey. comic. <laughs> and the Comics Code approved version, The Question. Check out our Spider-Man Steve Ditko episode if you haven't already. Yeah, I think we talked about... Um, both the question and Mr. A at length in that episode. Now, originally, he I lived that life. Yeah, the Mr. Our very a life. Mr. A. Now, originally, uh, Alan Moore he didn't want to use new characters. Um, he thought it wouldn't hit as hard with the reader, um, but he did change his mind, realizing that if he wrote them well enough, that this shit would hit different. Yeah, you know, if if he made them generic enough um, and made them kind of like superheroes that felt familiar, it would still work. I mean, that's why we have all those influences in there. You know, you got Night Owl, a little bit of Batman. They got the Blue Beetle, as you were saying. We got the Silver Surfer, Captain Adam as part of Doctor Manhattan. Um, I mean, if we're being honest here, I feel like Rorschach's more like Batman than Night Owl too. Okay, well, th then there you go. That's playing perfectly into what he was going for. He's trying to make these people generic enough that you got a little bit of everybody in everybody. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's a superhero <laughs> orgy. Is what yeah. Me. Yeah, you know, you see one of these guys, and you can pick out uh, maybe like five or six characters in them. And you can say that uh, a little bit of that guy was inside of him. Yes. Now, Alan Moore says on the basis for the comic. I suppose I was just thinking that a good way to that'd be a good way to start a comic book. Have a famous superhero found dead. As the mystery unraveled, we would be led deeper and deeper into the real heart of a superhero's world and show a reality that was very different to the general public image of a superhero. So he's got the idea. He's got the characters. Now, once Gibbons signed on as the artist, uh, they begin banging this thing out. They sit down at Gibbs' place. So are these guys just doing this straight from Jolly Old? 
Yeah, they're over in Jolly Old. They're living in Jolly Old at the time. Work from home. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's comics, dude. They got to draw in their studio. They're artists of of their craft. Um, So they discuss their influences. Um, Will they got Will Eisner in there? Who was uh, he? Did he's famous for doing the Spirit, and uh, Steve Ditko was another big one. Spider Man, Doctor Strange. Uh, Gibbon specifically cited Steve Ditko's work on early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man as an influence, as well as Doctor Strange, where he says, even at his most psychedelic, Ditko would still keep a pretty straight page layout. Uh, Now, Moore cited William S. Burroughs as one of his main influences during the conception of Watchmen. And are you guys familiar with this guy at all, William S. Burroughs? I've heard the name. This guy is a fucking maniac. He's actually like he's he, a maniac. So he's maniac a he's a writer. Floor. He's associated with like the Beat Generation. And this guy actually got he's he graduated Harvard. Brilliant writer. He got himself addicted to heroin just as like an experiment, <laughs> just so he could like write about it. And then he also wrote this like we studied this guy a little bit. Uh, one of our college professors actually knew this fucking maniac. And he hung out with all those beat guys. And he was saying that he wrote this thing called like um, word virus where he thought like, it's just like the classic inception, like teabag. If I tell you, don't think of an elephant, what do you think of? An elephant. Yeah. He thought words were like a virus so that by like reading words on the page, you were basically, um, manifesting it yeah, in your mind. like thoughts in it and that spreads into like something else. Like, I Ooh, mean. How high on heroin was he when he thought of this? Yeah, <laughs> check this guy out, man. This guy was way out of his time. Uh, now, he admitted that Burroughs' use of repeated symbols that would become latent with meaning in Burroughs' only comic strip, The Unspeakable Mr. Hart, was a big influence. Um, however, now, what are the odds? that a guy named Burroughs influences a man from the Burroughs. You're right mm. there. That's another, that's a Burroughs synchronicity, dude. That's a fucking virus, dude. That's a word virus. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, one of the biggest influences for the both of them in the beginning is Mad Magazine's famous 1953 parody of Superman, which was Super Duper Man. Mad Magazine, <laughs> Jesus Christ, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, Mad Magazine. <laughs> Basically... Like, this became, I guess, the word virus for the entire thing. They wanted to take this uh, and do, like, a 180 pivot. They wanted to go more dramatic instead of, like, over-the-top comedic. Even the visual choices of the layout of the whole thing were meticulously planned. um, As Watchmen turned away from the comics norm as they chose to use secondary colors... Uh, they divided the page into a nine-panel grid instead of um, a few panels that vary in size, which was typical for comics at the time. Issue number five, which is Fearful Symmetry, has the pages laid out so that the first scene mirrors the last, the second scene mirrors the second to last, and it continues mm-hmm. so on and so forth until you meet in the middle of the comic. It's actually fucking awesome if you go back and flip through it. Now, Gibbon said the way they did this was they did two pages at a time. Uh, There weren't fax machines back then, so Alan would give two pages to a taxi driver who would drive 50 miles to where he lived, Um, and that's how they kind of communicated on this stuff. Oh, and they just go to one person's (laughs) house. 
Hey man, they had to meet a deadline, dude. He had to, he had, Alan had to be writing at his house. He had to give the stuff to Dave who was drawing at his house. Uh, Dave said when they began bumping up against deadlines, he had his wife and his son drawing up the nine panel grids to save time. Now I got a theory that that's why they're symmetrical is because they, he had other people drawing his damn pages for him. Well, just the grids. Yeah. But just, Hey, do two of each of these. Boom. No, they, they Time actually. Saver. Time saver. Do you understand the symmetry is of the scenes themselves, not just the grids? And it saved time. <laughs> well, yes, they <laughs> saving time by having them draw in the grids. <laughs> now, when uh, Moore wrote the script for the first issue, he realized that he only had enough plot for six issues, uh, and they were contracted for 12. So Moore came up with the idea to alternate issues uh, that dealt with the overall plot with origin issues for each of the characters. Origin story, nice. Yeah, which is actually fucking badass. Um, Now, the cover of each issue serves as the first panel to the story, Gibbon said. Um, The cover art of Watchmen is in the real world. It looks quite real, but it's starting to turn into a comic book a portal to another dimension. Uh, and the covers... Especially if you're on LSD. Yep, especially <laughs> if you're um, <clears throat> using LSD to expand your mind and perception, just like the writer himself. Now, the covers were designed as close-ups that focused on a single detail with no human elements present. Uh, and it was around issue 10 when Moore says he came across a guide to cult television there was an episode of The Outer Limits called The Architects of Fear. And he says, hmm, that's a, that's a bit close to the end of our story because it's actually the exact twist. We'll obviously spoil the end. In the end of Watchmen, Ozymandias, one of the like smartest guys in the world, he's basically like Einstein. He was a superhero. He got a whole bunch of money And then he basically realizes the only way to save humanity is to have an existential threat. So he creates like an artificial giant squid alien, drops it on Manhattan with a nuclear bomb. And then the world is not concerned with like blowing each other up because they all come together uh, to fight the aliens, you know, to ward off these aliens. Uh, and that's essentially like this episode of Outer Limits, Architects of Fear. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. I think it's on Amazon Prime. But it's like the government is basically creating an alien threat to end the nuclear war with Russia so that they can have world peace. And they make this guy, they like surgically make him into an alien. This is actually just like that lady's uh, Spectrum Russian theory in our Area 51 episode or in the Roswell episode. Like she says the Roswell was actually planned out by the Russians who made these retarded children into aliens and had them crash landed. Uh, Come on. Similar thing. Okay, yeah. Similar thing to this episode, but it doesn't work in the episode, but it does work in the comic. Um, So he's like, hell, that's close to our story. And... I'm reading about this, and I didn't even—I didn't know this, but uh, Lynn Ween and Alan Moore apparently got an argument over changing the ending, and when Moore refused to give in, Ween quit the book as editor. Um, he explained <clears throat> that I kept telling him to be more original, 
You've got the capability. Do something different, not something that's already been done. And he didn't care. So uh, Ween, better. Ween quit the book as editor. Now, Moore did, however, acknowledge the Outer Limits episode by referencing it in the last issue as a little nod, so to speak. Um, but again, you know, this obviously didn't affect the outcome or the impact of the book too much. Uh, <clears throat> it went on to change the comics industry. It's referred to as one of the greatest comics of all time. Um, and there were stories like published before this episode, the Outer Limits episode. There was other stories published that had, um, similar concepts. Uh, even Kurt Vonnegut's book, The Sirens of Titan in 1959, they had like a staged alien attack for world peace in there. So, you know, this is a, this is a concept we've seen in sci-fi. Repeatedly. Yeah. Many, many times over. Now you might be asking yourself, how did this change comics? I am asking myself that. Okay. (laughs) So this comic. Finish reading it. So this comic, obviously massively successful. And um, even though like Watchmen, yes, it was part of a shift happening in the late 80s in American comics, which were moving towards more adult or grown-up themes, um, Watchmen went on to have a huge influence on the entire industry of comics and graphic novels for years to come. Uh, DC Comics exec Paul Levitz in 2010 said that along with the Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen set off a chain reaction of rethinking the nature of superheroes and heroism itself. It pushed the genre darker for more than a decade. Um, The series obviously got a whole bunch of notoriety. It would continue to be regarded as one of the most important literary works that the field of comics has ever produced. Uh, Watchmen essentially took the history of comics or the superhero and was using it as a lens for looking at the complexities of the human condition. Um, You know, what are their motives for dressing up and fighting crime? How would it be if they existed like this in the world that we live in? Um, He basically used the story as a means of reflecting anxieties and to... uh, deconstruct or satirize satirize is that a satirize. word satirize the uh, superhero concept as a whole well also what happens when the uh, good guys don't always win oh that too mm. Uh, mm. but again it's it depends on what you think is good and who you think is good you know it's not it's not a clear black and white like Mr. A would have you believe who watches the watchmen am I right yeah, now, now many hold the opinion that Watchmen is Moore's best work, and it is also regularly described as the greatest comic book ever written. Um, it is the only comic to win the Hugo Award in a one-time category, Best Other Form. And this is actually a pretty big deal because Hugo Awards, that's like, um, <clears throat> that's basically like the Oscars for sci-fi writing. Um, and I, I guess like a comic has never won that before or since. Now, Watchmen is nonlinear and told from many different points of view. It includes self-references, ironies, uh, even layout experiments such as the symmetrical design of issue five that we discussed. And all of this reflects Moore's interest in the human perception of time, 
which is a big theme in Watchmen um, with the Dr. Manhattan character and its implications for free will. Now, favorite characters of Watchmen, what do you guys got? The Polish chick in the yellow suit that gets nailed. Okay, so you like uh, Silk Spectre too. If that's her name, sure. That's your favorite. He likes number one also. Now, fitting you should like her because she's actually, I believe... um, Married? (laughs) No, not married. (laughs) Isn't she like a redhead in the comics? I believe so. I mean, maybe brunette, but... um, Oh, yes. It looks a little red the way they colored it in there, so... Uh, but the real question is, do the carpets match the drapes? Well, you'll have to ask Night Owl. Night Owl 2. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rob, what do we got? Um, I mean, Rorschach's kind of a dick, but I would probably say he's my favorite out of all of them. Okay, Not interesting. Surprised. Yeah. <laughs> no, if I got to choose one, I'm going Dr. Manhattan. I think that... Um, he's his- a total asshole. No, he's fucking badass, dude. Yeah, Manhattan. I like it. You want to take and, me with um, you? His origin in the comics is awesome, and I, you know, I see a little bit of myself in him. He really doesn't give a fuck about anyone or anything. Just like you. <laughs> Not a total <laughs> asshole, though, huh? <laughs> you know, people say that he's like, uh, what's the word? Apathetic? A prick? There you go. No. <laughs> now, okay, so obviously, like. Well, maybe not obviously if you've never read the damn thing, but uh, what if Ror- you've read half of it? So, <laughs> well, you you fall into this category because Rorschach is your favorite, but uh, Rorschach quickly became like one of the most popular characters, and Moore would go on to comment on the popularity of Rorschach, saying that there were certain areas of the comic book world where Watchmen cast a black bleak shadow. He originally intended Rorschach to be a warning about the possible outcome of vigilante thinking. But he says an awful lot of comics readers felt his remorseless, frightening, psychotic toughness was his most appealing characteristic. And this was not quite what he was going for. Um, He wanted to kind of make it like this is what a Batman would be in the real world. But he had forgotten that to a lot of comic fans that's smelling bad and having bad hygiene and not having a girlfriend, these are actually kind of heroic. So Rorschach kind of became the most popular character. Because you got to think, this is pre-Frank Miller Batman, although I believe that Frank Miller's um, Batman came out that exact year. And this is pre-Christian Bale, so... This is kind of a 180 from the Batman at the time. Where's Rachel? Yeah, it's not that Batman. So, like, you know, when we were watching the movie the other day and you hear his voice and you were like, who is this Christian Bale? Like, when Moore wrote the comic, this was before that dark image of Batman or even DC was really, had come about. You know, DC comics were still, like, fun and bright and and it it was, like, uh, almost like Marvel is today. But then... This thing comes out, boom, they go dark, and that's where you get like the Deadpool joke of like, you should be in the DC universe because you're so dark, you know? When he says that to Cable. Now, see, this is what I've been wondering going through his outline and everything, and maybe this is the philosophy that you want to discuss. But remember, we, I remember we were talking about like the rules of comic books, right? Like the moral rules or whatever. What is that called again? Moral rules? Are you talking about like Mr. A? 
No, 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 no. I forget what episode we were talking about. It. I think it was Captain America where, like, there were certain things that were just, like, unwritten or unspoken rules that you did not do in comics. Oh, you're talking about, like, comics code? Sure, let's go with that. <clears throat> so, like, what if, like, if everybody had just a clean cut, like, every, like, every hero is, like, a Superman type or a Captain America type, and all these people reading these comic books are having these, like, positive, strong, whatever role models, and now we got these, like, dark vigilante types and people are thinking it's okay like that dude that shot up the movie and the batman movie in colorado he's like thinking he's some kind of batman he's just this dark knight doing justice well okay that's uh, there, okay there's a lot to unpack with the paragraph that you just stated but i don't believe that the gentleman who shot up aurora theater was a vigilante he was that's how he viewed himself. <laughs> no, dude. Okay, okay. Well, but we're saying that psychotic people are our heroes in a way. Well, yeah. Well, he's based. Yeah, exactly. Like his whole comic is basically a fuck you to like superheroes in general. Yeah, he's you got to cut guys. You got to rewind it back. He, uh, his little brother died. He said, "Fuck school." He's he's um parodying the whole thing. He's saying like this. These people would not be like heroic. Like, um. What's what's the gentleman's name? Superman, Clark Kent Clark types. Kent. They would be like these fucked up people, and like, yeah, the guy works at a fucking newspaper for Christ's sakes. Yeah, and he mixes um, change, has to change in a phone booth. Yeah, he's saying this is like all stupid. I guess right. And so it's funny that this becomes of- like the most popular comic of all time. Is a comic that's making fun of comics. Like, is that not peak irony? And with the most popular character, Rorschach, he's making him like a combination of what he thinks Batman would really be. And he's mixing him with the morals of Mr. A. And this was a big fuck you to those kinds of characters. It showed the, he wanted to, as he said, show the dangers of vigilantism and this, uh, Randian philosophy, which was big in Mr. A. Um, no disrespect to uh, Rorschach, though, but gotta say, Batman is cooler. Well, talk to me about this Randian philosophy. Maybe you'll answer some of my questions. Otherwise, I'm gonna get back to you. Now, did we <laughs> did we discuss this Randian philosophy on the Ditko episode? Because I remember us like maybe hitting on it a little bit, but I don't. I still don't think I grasp it. I think we did touch on it. So, like, Anne Rand, she wrote The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and she basically had this philosophy, which became, what? what is it, objectivist? Yes, objectivism. It's like you basically make your own happiness. There's no greater good. Um, shit like that. And you're basically in it looking out for yourself to get yours. And uh, what Steve Ditko did, he was a huge fan of Ayn Rand. So he made this guy, Mr. A, who goes around and he's saying like, there's no gray area. Like you're either fully evil or fully good. And there's no middle ground. There's, there's only black and white. Like nobody is in this gray area. So, you know. That's very subjective though. Yeah. Again, like what, what is this coming out of left field? Subjective? Objective? Subjective? What do we got here? What's this? I'm just saying like, only is- if you're saying like someone's only good or only bad, that's just dependent on what you think. Like you can't just say, oh, well, you're evil because this is what I believe. Yeah. So you're spouting out exactly what Moore is getting at. Moore's saying, hey, 
there's a flaw in this. Like this, who makes this guy, Mr. A, so mighty that he can judge who's black and who's white? He's saying like this, this is wrong. Like obviously it could be different in somebody else's head. So he wanted to give a big fuck you by making the character of Rorschach. Oh, you hear that? I'm he's saying fuck you to Mr. A. <laughs> yeah, but see, that's you can't what, go to my restaurant anymore. That's what I don't get though. Is like if Rorschach is supposed to be that guy, he's kind of like an asshole though. Exactly. That's what Moore's saying. That person would be a fucking asshole in real life, and they a good guy. But see, like he's not a good guy, though. I think is what the point is. He's not not necessarily that he's not a good guy. Like obviously, yes, some stuff he does is gonna be good. But it's just like he was exploring in V for Vendetta, like using terrorism and like killing innocent people as a way to like get your views across. Even if you are the hero, like, is that good? He explores that in the graphic novel V for Vendetta and comes to the conclusion that, like, no, the hero um, is not justified in in using this means to an end, and that's why he has to, like, give up the mantle to Evie, you know? Mm. Maybe he just lived long enough to see himself become the villain. <laughs> yeah, so we're just going to start <laughs> now quoting Batman. Now, um, so that's also like going on the lines of, you know how they say one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter? Never. Yeah. You never heard that? One man's trash is another man's treasure? Dude, it's the same fucking thing. One, one person views them as a terrorist while they, they view themselves as a freedom fighter, you know? I mean, I get what you're trying to say, but I've never heard it put in those words. Isn't that what the quote is? One, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter? Well, these are the ideas. Alex Jones. Yeah, these are the ideas that he's just trying to explore is like, you know, I guess maybe a level of like true goodness or um, or maybe there is none of that and it's all hmm. a gray area. Like he's going a full 180 of Mr. A where – Everything's a gray area. Yeah, everything's a gray area. Because this guy's fucking breaking in people's houses and eating their beans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there you have it. I mean, that's that's what we got on Randy and philosophy. If anybody <laughs> out there has maybe read some of this Anne Rand stuff, um, let us know because we're clearly struggling with it. And I did not read this one in school. <laughs> Or maybe um, if your name's Randy and you have a philosophy that you want to share with us, hit us up. Her name is not Randy. <laughs> Rob has this specific thought that it's Randy and then like N, Randian philosophy. Maybe, maybe it's her pseudonym. <laughs> yeah, just Anne Randy. On words. Um, so do we want to get into the film? Well, it's I only one scene you need to watch. We will. So Watchmen has a long history with Hollywood. In 1986, which is the same year the comic came out, producers Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver of Matrix fame acquired the film rights to uh, Watchmen for 20th Century Fox. Now, Gibbon says he remembers meeting with Joel Silver who wanted to cast Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Manhattan. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and Gibbons was like, you know, I mean, he's got the physique, but the German accent. 
And he was just like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, also, Robin Williams was interested in coming on his Rorschach. Mm. Now, can you imagine that for a second? I'd like to get in a time machine and make that happen. That show would have been Dude, sick. Dude, imagine Robin Williams as Rorschach. <laughs> uh, and even Richard Gere was interested. Now, I did not get a, a reading on who Richard Gere was interested in playing. I'm assuming maybe Night Owl. Night Owl too, probably. Makes sense, you know? Um now, obviously, Alan Moore declined to write the screenplay, so they enlisted screenwriter Sam Hamm, uh, who said he was coming off writing Batman. Is that his real name? Yes, that's his real name, I believe. Uh, now, he was coming off writing Batman, and he was asked to take a stab at Watchmen, and he thought it was just it was too much to compress into two hours. Honestly, it is. Uh, and he says, yeah. yes, the comic is a spectacular piece of architecture. Trying to replicate it was simply impossible. That's um, impossible. Now, he did change the ending around, um, but then it switched to the hands of Warner Brothers, who pushed for director Terry Gilliam of uh, 12 Monkeys and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas fame. Uh, Gilliam eventually left Watchmen, describing the comic as unfilmable. And Warner Brothers dropped the project altogether. Now, Moore even has said that when he was writing all this stuff throughout the 80s, he preferred to concentrate on things that only comics could achieve. Um, the way a great deal of information could be included visually in every panel, uh, juxtaposition between what a character was saying and what the image the reader was looking at would be. He says most of his work from the 80s onwards was purposefully designed to be unfilmable. But, no fear, in 2001, Gordon partnered with Lloyd Levin and Universal Pictures, and the comic was given the script treatment by David Hayter of X-Men fame, and eventually Hayter and the producers left Universal due to creative differences. Now, in July 2004, it was announced that Paramount Pictures would produce Watchmen and Michael Bay was considered to direct, but eventually they attached Darren Arnofsky of Black Swan fame, and he was going to direct Hater's script, but he eventually left. Paramount gave up as well. In 2005, Gordon and Levin met with Warner Brothers again to develop the project. Uh, Tim Burton said that he was interested in directing the film, but ultimately turned it down until finally it comes in the hands of old Zack Snyder of 300 fame. Sounds like this fucking thing is cursed. I mean, it's a hell of an undertaking, dude. So Zack <clears throat> Snyder gets this thing. Um, he's got his screenwriter, Alex Say he was hired to rewrite Hader's script, and while he drew from his favorite elements of Hader's script, he would return the story to the original Cold War setting of the Watchmen comic. Because I guess in Hader's script, it took place in the modern world, and similar to his 300 approach, Snyder used the comic book as a storyboard. Um, now, filming started on September 17th, 2007 and ended on February 19th, 2008 with a budget of $130 million. It only pulled in $185 million at the box office. Now, this film does have a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'd give it a solid 71. 
Okay, really? Now, what are we thinking, T-Bag? What's your Rotten Tomatoes score on this one? I mean, I only watched the two-minute scene, but it's, I'd give it a 69. Well, you said you watched the rest <laughs> of it with your dad. It's like a three-hour movie. That sex scene's not even halfway into it. It's two hours and 38 uh, minutes. That's all I remember. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> okay, unbelievable. So, now, Rob, you're saying 70. You're going a little higher? A little bit. Okay, now, what did you not like Still specifically? Still tomato, though. What did you like? What did you not like specifically? I think just like, you know, you previously mentioned and every fucking person besides uh, Zack Snyder has said that it's uh, damn near impossible to turn into a movie and even he couldn't get the fucking thing right. That's he left what you out mean. an imperative piece of the story. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Now... Anything that you liked. I mean, that's a pretty high score for just saying that he couldn't get the fucking thing right. I mean, I I thought it was visually very well done. And, you know, the guy's a hell of a director. But <laughs> I'm not blaming the fact that the story was just too hard to squeeze into the Hollywood ideals of two-hour time limits. I feel like it should be done like... And honestly, I only really watched two of the TV episodes that I wasn't that impressed with. But I think that it would be, it would have been better to do it as like a, a 12 show. part series, like a little mini series type thing. Yeah, I think the original director wanted to do Where that. like each section could be like an hour or however long. And then it's like a little bit less compressed. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. But hey, what the fuck do I know? Yeah. And you know, Snyder, Zack Snyder, I mean, you can claim he's a hell of a director. I mean, 300, you know, as I, um, honestly, I'd put probably Watchmen or Dawn of the Dead as maybe his best stuff. I mean, he's- What about Wonder Woman? Dude, he's done some of the stuff that gets comic fans so fucking pissed off. He's done Sucker Punch, which people notoriously hated. He did Man of oh, Steel. Wow. He did Batman vs. Superman. Yeah, it sucked. Fucking god-awful. He partially directed Suicide Squad. And Justice League. People fucking hated that, too. Okay, but I'm saying he's the director. He's not the fucking guy that wrote it. Whoever wrote Batman vs. Superman's a fucking retard. That should never okay. have happened. Hey, okay. hey, we say on the spectrum. If you say, hey, uh, here's, you know, a couple mil to direct this fucking superhero movie, you're probably going to take it. Okay, yeah. Now, honestly, we are probably being a little too hard on Zach. But I'm um, saying if you watch 300 or Watchmen and just take it in for the visuals, those are both visually badass movies. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say great fucking soundtrack, great casting, and honestly, great cinematography. It does look like a really fucking good film. And Adam can vouch for us on this one. Great sex scene. Am I right? <laughs> I mean, they pretty much almost show full penetration. I'm going to debate that a little bit. I'm going to say two scenes. <laughs> all right. Two scenes that Snyder did particularly well on was the intro. I mean, this oh, is one yeah, of the greatest badass. intros I think of any comics book comic book movie ever, except for maybe that Swamp Thing with CCR that we talked about. Nah, this is better. <laughs> I mean, you got Bob Dylan I give playing it to Bob Dylan. Yeah, over the uh, scenes of like the original Minutemen. It's real fucking badass. Just Google that, you know, um, Watchmen intro. You can find it on YouTube. Or just watch the film. And the Dr. Manhattan scene. Fucking great scene. 
It's exactly like the comic. He did a great job of uh, mixing that all together and showing you everything you need. And really, aside from this, though, the film kind of missed the mark. I think one of the big reasons is that, like, not only did he change the ending to where you don't have the alien threat of the giant squid, he, like, tricks it into making a nuclear blast and everybody thinks it was Dr. Manhattan. So then Dr. Manhattan just leaves Earth, which is, like, totally different than the comic. And Well, he still left Earth at the end. Yeah, but it's like... But not because everyone hated him. Yeah, it's like his whole plan was... The entire point of the comic was left out of the movie. Like, well, I don't think the entire point. I do. The whole Ozymandias' whole plan was, hey, we got this alien threat and we're going to yeah, unite the people, was, have world peace. But that in itself was a fucking ripoff. The idea of the comic is that this isn't the stereotypical, like, good guys always win and do right by your neighbor. It's like, Hey, this is how fucked up people are in the real world. And this is what they'd be like if comics were actually like true to form and not just some like happy go lucky fucking millionaire guy driving a black Lamborghini. That's all souped up around shooting fucking cool guns because he's a millionaire that can get this shit. Okay, see, now you're getting into the Alan Moore mindset. Now, also, though, I still think we we would have been better off seeing the giant squid and seeing the bodies. Oh, yeah, I mean, that would have been badass. This is one of the biggest things is that you just see the flash of the nuclear bomb. In the comic, there's like three pages where you just see dead bodies everywhere, and that's the big twist, and you see, hey, the fucking bomb exploded. We couldn't stop it. Maybe they had like a uh, Tropic Thunder situation on set and the explosion went off too soon and they were just like, hey, we got to just roll with this fucking footage that with we got. With this flash. <laughs> um, now, I, I will say another... You, you know, it would have made the movie better than a giant squid. What's that? Giant spider. <laughs> now, this is not Superman. Um, <laughs> but another way it kind of missed the mark is we didn't get the origin of Ozymandias in the comic book. We get that origin and this is why it's such a big shock as to the twist in the end that he's the mastermind behind oh, this yeah, whole thing. He kind of just shows up. At yeah. The you kind of, in the movie, you just like, if, if I had never read the graphic novel and just saw the movie, I'd be like, who the fuck is this yeah, guy? Who the fuck even is this guy? They give you kind of no background on him. He's just kind of thrown in there. Hanging out in Antarctica in the pyramids. And, um, spoiler alert. Yeah. And now the sex scene. Okay. Also check out that. Yes, our Antarctica yes. episode. You like this sex scene, Adam? I, I think mean, he just not likes the, the sex girl itself, involved. but yeah, yeah. And did you like sitting there for that long watching it with your father? No, that did. was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> See, now, that's what I was saying. This is one of the longest sex scenes in a movie, and it's showing full on thrusting penetration. I mean, not penetration, <laughs> but it's showing like full on thrusting. And well, bud, that's part of sex. Yeah, but do we need to see that in the movie with Leonard Cohen dubbed over it saying, Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Like now, every time I hear that song, this is the scene that I think of. That's better than thinking about Shrek. <laughs> You think of Shrek having sex when yeah. you hear the song? No, man, that <laughs> song is in the movie Shrek. Well, 
Probably you. You're saying though, would have been better if they had a sex scene in Shrek. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying at all. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying. Google the scene. You know, give us your opinions on it. Other than that, I'm, I mean, he did a pretty good job with the Rorschach character in the film. Um, but I think like the overall substance of the movie, it just seems more hollow than the comic. Um, the twist doesn't hit the same. As we said, probably because he changed the whole thing. And, you know... <laughs> the twist doesn't hit the same because it's not fucking there. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. He missed the mark. <laughs> but it's also like, you got to know, okay, Zack Snyder, come on. I, I assume this is a big comics guy. How many comic cons do you think this guy's been to? And he doesn't know, um, hey, when you're dealing with comics, it's comic book 101 that when you fuck with the original source material, people are going to mm. get pissed off. And I'm sure this is magnified, and as Watchmen is is so revered in the comics world. Maybe uh, you ever think maybe Zack Snyder is his in his own mindset, of, like Alan Moore type, where he's like, "Fuck these comics! I'm just gonna do whatever the fuck I want with them." And if people get mad at me, they can suck my dick because guess what? I already got your money. Because look how many fucking movies he just rattled off that he's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You think he would have learned his lesson by now? Maybe he was like reveling in it. Like he's just like, ha fuck all you nerds, dude. I'm getting rich over here while you guys are just fucking hating on me on Rotten Tomatoes. Behind I mean, your fucking blogs. I mean, I think he needs to wise up because he's, well, he's still getting movies. Well, he's ruining them. Well, Batman versus Superman shouldn't have been a fucking movie to begin with. Okay, that's another episode for another day. <laughs> now, let's get into some of the prequels and sequels. So, in the comics world, they did come out with um, a prequel known as Before Watchmen, um, which just kind of more or less tells, like, the story of the original Minutemen. But it does... I thought this was interesting. I was reading up on this because I've never read the full series or anything, but uh, Len Wein, who... What did he do? He quit the book because of the whole like twist ending because he wouldn't change it from that Outer Limits episode. Played out. Len Wein himself wrote the Ozymandias edition and I think he got the last laugh because he, this is a prequel, keep in mind, and in the comic, Wein writes that Ozymandias got the whole idea from watching the Outer Limits episode. <laughs> so he's just basically saying fuck you to Alan Moore. <laughs> like he's just like, oh, like he's literally sitting down reading a TV guide and then he like watches the episode and he's like, I got to do this. I could do this, but it's got to be bigger. And then that's like the whole seed for the idea. <laughs> now there's also Doomsday Clock, which is a comic series that is a sequel. This is like part of the DC rebirth. Uh, because, you know, there's there's a lot of storylines going on in DC, a lot of different universes, multiverses. Um, this one uses the concept of the multiverse where the Watchmen universe is separate from the DC universe. And um, each universe's character treat the other universe's character as fictional. And in Watchmen universe, uh, it's several years after the bomb goes off in New York City and... Rorschach's journal has been published, which also, spoiler alert, happens in Watchmen. And this exposes Ozymandias' this whole event. And then now you've got Ozymandias, who's a fugitive, and he's gathering other guys to find Dr. Manhattan, bring him back to save the world. 
Um, so it's it's pretty cool. And also in the actual DC universe in the Doomsday Clock, you have the Superman theory taking place, which is basically a conspiracy theory that accuses the federal government of the United States of creating its own metahumans and creating an international conflict leading to an arms race. Um, so you got all these things playing in the Doomsday Clock. Pretty cool series. Check it out if you're so inclined, uh, if you're really bored in your quarantine. And then we got the new HBO series, which is also a sequel. Now, T-Bag, I'm assuming no, but have you seen this? You assume correct. <laughs> now, <laughs> so I watched the whole series in preparation for this because I watched like the first three episodes and just kind of lost interest. It was just kind of boring. And I will say, it's weird that it's, even a sequel because the first like five episodes really don't have anything to do with Watchmen. Also, this was, this was like written and directed by Damon Lindelof. He did Lost. He did Prometheus. He did one of the Star Treks. Um, so, you know, this, this is a big wig writer and he decides to pick up the Watchmen now, he does claim that Watchmen is like the greatest piece of fiction ever produced, the original graphic novel. So he takes a stab at this. Now, first five episodes really have nothing to do with Watchmen. It feels like you're just kind of dropped into this ongoing story, which I guess that's true for like any story. But with this one, you're just kind of like, who the fuck are these people? What the fuck is going on? Uh, it isn't maybe until like episode six, which is I think the only one that Rob watched with me, that you get the comic connections because that's the origin of Hooded Justice, um, which I thought it was cool. I mean, this is where I will say the show actually starts to get interesting. And from from these episodes on, it's heavy on the comic connections. So if you sat down and tried to watch this with having no idea what Watchmen was, first five episodes, you'd be like, what the fuck is happening here? Then when the comic connections come in, you'd be even more confused mm. because you don't have a background on any of these characters. And then... So they don't lead you through a background on anyone until that episode? Well, you kind of get them like throughout watching it, like it goes back, if that makes sense. Okay. But... Not on the original comic because it's a sequel, so you don't yeah, get but any there's of no the, like character development, so you don't know who's who. He, exactly, like the only person you get a background on is, is you the get main the chick? well, no, you get the hooded justice origin story. Yeah, but she's supposed to be like the granddaughter or something. Of yeah, hooded justice, right? Yeah, but you don't get her like true backstory. It's kind of like woven throughout the thing, but you don't get like an origin story. Maybe or that's anything. coming later, you know. Well, he said he's not doing a second season. Um, and although this is a sequel, it kind of turns into a reboot at the end because then you have the exact same thing. It's a smarter girl who's coming up to do a smarter plan to take over the world. And same thing we do every night. Yeah, it's like, it's like <laughs> it becomes this exact reboot and then they got to save the day. And, wow, um, so this guy pulled an Alan Moore and ran out of material. And now he's just throwing in origin stories to beef it up. Yeah, maybe. And and they definitely overused um, Mozart's Requiem. What is it? Lacrimosa? You know that song? Great fucking song. 
They play that like every fucking five minutes in the last three episodes. I was actually getting kind of annoyed. <laughs> um, but So correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that we, we just probably shouldn't even spend the time to watch this. Yeah, I mean, I would unless you're like a deep, diehard fan of Watchmen, then yeah. Don't watch the Watchmen. <laughs> no, I'd say it's worth... <laughs> like, if you're a big fan of Watchmen, check it out. But other, like... Well, it sounds like if you're a big fan of Watchmen, you would fucking hate it. Well, see, that's like... Some people hate it because they changed the characters. Like, they made Hooded Justice a black guy, even though you never know his identity in the comic, and people were getting all uppity. And then they had, like... Dr. Manhattan disguises himself as a black guy and people were saying, oh, they made him a black character when he's a fucking blue, like, space dude that's glowing, made of atoms. Well, I guess everybody's made of atoms, but you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought he became that way, though. He wasn't always blue, was he? Yeah, he was white. He was a white guy. Oh, and they, he was a white guy. Well, yeah, they do this in the show, too. He's He's white. They show him as a little and kid then he in the turns show. Black? No, he goes into a black body to disguise himself. I mean, watch the fucking show. I'm not gonna sit here and narrate <laughs> the whole goddamn thing. I'm just saying. I was just playing devil's advocate. I was just fucking. With I you. think it's like kind of cool to see how Lindelof wanted to write this. Lindelof. Um, I get how some people got pissed. I mean, it's just like we were saying. He kind of fucking with source material, but not really. But you could see how he is. So of course, people are. I mean, people are gonna get pissed off at anything. Well, yeah. Anything. I was just going to say that political. nothing's going to ever be perfect for everyone. But that's just the way the yeah. world spins, baby. I mean, check it out. Let us know what you think. Now, let's get into how Moore got the shaft. You know, we want to talk about why Rob thinks he's so pretentious, um, why this guy hates Hollywood, hates even comic conventions, hates like mainstream stuff. Is there anything he does like besides writing books? Um, wizardry. Anarchy, um, sex. Big Sex Pistols fan. Yeah. Nice. Now, okay, so before we get into how Moore came to be the way he is, let me give you a further highlight reel of this guy's comics career. So we got V for Vendetta, which he wrote in 82 to 85, picked up again from 88 to 89. Hell of a year. Became a Hollywood film. We got Swamp Thing, which he wrote in 84, 87, also became a Hollywood film. Watchmen, 86 to 87, became a Hollywood film. Batman the Killing Joke, which he wrote in 1988, became an animated film. From Hell, which he wrote from 1989 to 96, became a Hollywood film. And Lost Girls, he wrote in 91 to 92, which actually needs to be a film. This is... um. Now, did you did you do any Googling on this, T-Bag? I did not. Okay, check this comic out. I think this is one you'd be really interested in. Right up and your alley. I'd be interested in seeing the film. He took like characters from from children's literature like Alice from Alice in Wonderland, um, Wendy from Peter Pan, that those type of characters, and he made like a full on like porno. <laughs> I know, like it's like you, you add me up and so I was like man this sounds interesting now of course that'd be a porno yeah it's like erotica like he draws them in the and it's like Kama Sutra but with like characters from 
Disney stories. Unfortunately, we didn't see one with Tinkerbell on it for you. Yeah, there's no <laughs> Tinkerbell in there, unfortunately. But you know, check it out. I Not mean, yet. it's pretty interesting, and I'd be I'd be really interested. You know, we should pitch this to like browsers or something. <laughs> or like Bang Bros, we do like a we direct it. We do like a oh, Lost Girls. <laughs> yeah, we do like a a Lost Girls cinematography. I mean, I'd be into it. Are you going to do the um, casting for that as well, or is that something we all get to take part in? Now he also goes on to write. <laughs> We're going to need a couch. Now he also goes on to write uh, <laughs> top ten in ninety nine to two thousand one, Promethea in ninety nine to two thousand five, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen from 99 to 2019, which also became a Hollywood film, and Jerusalem in 2016, which is just a straight-up novel that I guess took him like a decade to write. Probably soon to be a Hollywood film. Now, today, (laughs) Moore resides in a home that you would think belongs to a gothic teenager. He's got a library of rare books, antique wands with gold inlay, and a painting of the mystical Anakian tables used by Dr. John Dee, who was the court astrologer of Queen Elizabeth I, and who also had an influence on old Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons lives, dude. Make sure you check out that episode if you haven't already. Uh, Now, Moore hates comic book conventions. He never leaves jolly old England, and he is a devout believer in magic as a, quote-unquote, science of consciousness. He says... I am what Harry Potter grew up into, and it ain't a pretty sight. So, you know, there's a picture of him there. Looks like, as we said, Hagrid. Um, he's a self looks like Dumbledore. Self-proclaimed <laughs> wizard, as Rob said. It looks like he's in a fucking <laughs> gay biker game. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like Willy Wonka. If he was in a biker game. Yes, yes, that's it. Willy Wonka biker game. Okay, there we go, there we go. Loves the chocolate. So as we said, Moore is a bit of a Scrooge, I guess. And I suppose rightfully so, as we find out, you know, as we said, these comics creators, they've been getting screwed over for decades. Um, Moore is no different. In regards to um, the creators, DC and the Watchmen, um, DC included a reversion clause which Alan Moore essentially like signed the film rights over to DC. And this Sounds reversion like is to lawyer up. Now this reversion clause would return ownership to the creators. If the characters were not used for a year and DC would pay Moore and Gibbons a substantial amount of money to retain the rights until that time. Now, When the comic came out, Moore told an audience at a UK convention in 1986, if the characters have outlived their natural lifespan and DC doesn't want anything to do with them, after a year, we get them and we can do what we want with them, which I am perfectly happy with. Now, this verbiage, I guess, is like standard for the publishing industry. But what happened to Watchmen? Fucking blasted off like a damn rocket. It got watched by a lot of men. Yep. Became a full-on red rocket. Massive hit. (laughs) So um, now you got to keep in mind, the mid-80s, very few comic books enjoyed any kind of longevity, especially a 12-issue limited series like this. While trade paperback (laughs) collections were not out of the question, um, they weren't the norm. And even on the rare occasion that that did happen... 
they would only stay in print for maybe a few years. So Moore says, hell, I'll agree to these terms. And he expected, hey, I sell them the rights. I regain control of Watchmen by the early 90s. No big deal. But since Watchmen was such a success, DC was not going to and probably never will put the book out of print. Same exact shit happened with V for Vendetta, which I actually think was on the same contract because this was also DC and it was around the same time. So boom, you know, he swindled and they write, I mean, DC, they write these contracts so that they have all the control if on the occasion that they do get a hit. Um, so more severed ties with DC comics over what he believed was unfair treatment as his relationship with DC gradually fell apart over the disputes of creators' rights and merchandising. Um, So, A, I think it was like 8% of sales is what I believe that these guys got on this thing, Gibbons and Moore. And the disputes arose specifically because Moore and Gibbons were not paid any royalties for a Watchmen spinoff badge set, um, which... The lawyers over at DC defined them as a promotional item and not merchandise. Now, Moore, again, would go on to say, I don't want anything more to do with these works because they were stolen from me, knowingly stolen. So according to Moore, DC hijacked the properties he created and the American film business has distorted his writing beyond recognition. So DC is the terrorist, the film industry is the plane, and Moore's work is the Twin Towers. Boom. Oh, use that. They are fucking him left and right. Now, Moore even said to a DC exec, he said this. You've managed to successfully swindle me, and so I will never work for you again. So this is like how his relationship fell out with DC. But I think his true disdain for Hollywood began in 2001 because that year we get the first film adaptation of Moore's graphic novels, which was From Hell. Uh, This was by 20th Century Fox. Basically, this was based on his extensively researched account of the Jack the Ripper murders starring Johnny Depp. And it was Hell of a movie. It was originally put out in a 572-page black-and-white title. Uh, Moore had no creative participation in the film, and happily so. He said, there was no way I would be able to be fair to it. I did not wish to be connected with it and regarded it as something separate to my work. Uh, he says, in retrospect, this was a naive attitude. So... This is his first experience with one of his works becoming a movie. And I guess he was kind of giving it the Stephen King attitude, like saying, hey, here you go. Just, you know, do whatever you want. I'll just kind of stay out of it. Real hands-off guy. Now, two years after this, 20th Century Fox yet again releases one of his works, and this was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now, is that the one with uh, Kel as a superhero, or is that the one where they, like, go back in time and they got to... You know what I'm talking about? This is with um, Sir Sean Connery. Rob hit it. League is set and the game is on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You know, it's like Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll, the Invisible Man. It's like using some of those like common stories if they were like a superhero team. 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Jules Verne and stuff. Got yeah, it, got it, got it, got it. Massive piece of <laughs> shit when it came out. <laughs> uh, you liked it. Yeah, I was also a kid. I didn't understand. I just thought blowing shit up was cool. And you probably I mean <laughs> honestly, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Maybe I will think it's cool. Yeah, I haven't seen it since we literally saw it in theaters, I don't think. Yeah, now now this is where the monkey starts popping out of the bottle. Because in 2003, so this film gets made, and then in 2003, Larry Cohen and Martin Pohl filed a lawsuit against 20th Century Fox, claiming that the company had intentionally plagiarized their script, Cast of Characters, which they claimed to have pitched to Fox several times between 93 and 96, and that Fox basically got Alan Moore to write the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic as a smokescreen. Although Fox denied the allegations as absurd nonsense. Now Moore found the accusations deeply insulting and he was summoned to give 10 hours of testimony via video link that he didn't create the graphic novel as a way for the studio to plagiarize the writers. And he had this to say about that testimony. If I had raped and murdered a school bus full of retarded children after selling them heroin, I doubt that I would have been cross-examined for 10 hours. <laughs> so <laughs> What are you supposed to say for 10 hours? Exactly. This is an original work. Also, how fucking, how fucking crazy are these assholes that said, oh, we're going to file a lawsuit and say that you got this guy to write an entire comic book series <laughs> as a, a fucking facade, a fugazi for, <laughs> to steal our work? Uh, you know, he said this, this and it, they didn't even like win or lose the case. It was settled out of court. <laughs> They probably were just like, hey, here's a million and they bucks. Won, man. Fuck off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Mr. Moore took it as an especially bitter blow, uh, believing that he had been denied the chance to exonerate himself. You know, this is a this is a man of character. Alan Moore is a man of deep character. And from then on, Mr. Moore has asked that his name be removed from film versions of his work, including V for Vendetta and Watchmen and that all of his film royalties go to the artists who co-created the comics. Seems like a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. he seems like a nice guy. Now, in regards <laughs> to the the highlight reel, which like everyone, almost every one of his comics has become a film adaptation, uh, Moore himself has since been opposed to film adaptation, stating, I want to give comics a special place when I was writing things like Watchmen. I wanted to show off just what the possibilities of the comic book medium were and films completely different. So to round this one out, uh, Moore says that if we only see comics in relation to movies, the best that they will ever be is films that do not move. Mm. So now, what do we think of that? Now, Rob obviously thinks this guy's pretentious. Um, what are we thinking over here, T-Bag? I mean, that's a heavy, that's a bar right there. <laughs> this guy's got yeah, bars Moore's for days. Yeah, dropping bars for days. We've already seen that with his comic highlight reel. And his whole school bus full of children that he sold heroin to. The guy spits, keeps it real. This motherfucker spitting. Am I wrong in this, that they were going to pay him 8% of the profits? And for, he basically said, fuck off. What, for the movie Watchmen? Yeah. 
Oh, maybe that's where I got the 8% from. Because 8% of 185 is about 15 mil we're looking at there. Yeah, but again, I'm saying this guy's this is a man of deep character. He doesn't he wrote his comics specifically to be the way the medium of comics. Well, they already made it, so he might as well fucking cash the fuck out is what I is all I'm saying. But see, well, this is a guy a, that comes from nothing, man. Money doesn't mean anything. Yeah, to him. he doesn't care about yeah, the money. Well, money doesn't mean anything to the guy in a fucking purple velour suit <laughs> with gold <laughs> rings on every fucking finger. He's a rapping wizard. Leave him alone. <laughs> hey, you know what they say about wizards? They never die. <laughs> so you just think he should say he should basically swallow his pride. And say, fuck it, give me the money, let me get paid? Well, I honestly think I formed my opinion about him before I read that they made him do a 10-hour fucking video. That's kind of fucked up. <laughs> to prove that he That's didn't. the one thing that's going to change your opinion. <laughs> I'd, probably be, I'd probably be pissed off about having to do that too if I was him. But I mean, look at like the way that he was treated when the first couple films came out. I mean, yes, the lawsuit is, de- is definitely a fucking blow. But to to like swindle him out of his own rights like that. But I I mean I guess that is again his fault. Yeah, but I'm saying when you fucking sign paperwork, that's that's just the fucking game, buddy. Yeah, I mean I guess there's <laughs> there's, there's no arguing that. The um, lawyer Rob right there. No, but I'm saying like if you signed a fucking contract that says hey, I don't get the rights to this. If you wanted the rights to it, then guess what, buddy? You should have said, hey, uh, I don't like the way this contract is worded and uh, have my lawyers take a look at it and submit you a new one. But he didn't fucking do that, so I can't really feel bad for the guy. And then on top of that, if I mean, if I'm wrong in this, then fuck me. But if they were like, hey, you know what? Sorry that we fucked your movie up. Let us give you 8%. And he was like, ah, go fuck yourself. And then he's still bitching about it. Then like, well, I don't think it's that. I think from most of the interviews I watched with him, it's not that like, it's just the fucking principle that they made it into a movie and he didn't want it. Yeah. And it's the thing of like, when you, well that, I get that from like an artist perspective. Like when you sign up to do a movie, DC does like DC's not just saying, "Hey, sign this thing, we'll give you 8% even if we fuck it up." Like they want him to endorse the movie. They want him to be like, "Hey, I stand by what the folks at DC are doing, you know, do some press." And he's like, "Fuck you guys. I don't even want my name attached to this shit." Like he doesn't even he would rather just say, "Hey, you know, give my money to the artist. I just don't want anything to do with it." That's a bold strategy. I mean, I think that's a, um, I mean, hey, I'm with you, man. I would say, fuck it and give me all, let me get the paper, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Moore is a real soul skater. But yeah, Moore is, is a, he's a fucking real deal wizard, you know? And and he is, he's a fucking anarchist. So he probably just hates like American capitalism in general. But from Mm. most of the things I gathered is that. Never leaves Jolly Old, you said. Yeah, he never leaves Jolly Old. But I think he just hates like um, America, not America, like Money. Ho- no Hollywood, because he says like oh, Hollywood yeah. hasn't had an original thought in fucking decades. I mean, I do back that. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, he's, he's not wrong. Yeah, he's just saying like basically everything is a fucking remake of some show that everybody hated in the '60s or everybody loved in the '60s. It's like they just pull, and then he says. As far as comics go, 
Hollywood's basically using the comics industry as a pumpkin patch, just picking what they want from it. And he's like, hey, you can do a lot of cool shit in the comics medium that you can't do in books. Well, I guess this was his mm-hmm. original philosophy, but again, I think that's kind of um, flawed in this day and age, would you say? The pumpkin patch analogy? Like, movies can basically do what comics can. Like, back in the 80s when Moore was writing V for Vendetta and Watchmen, like, yeah, CGI and effects hadn't caught up. Like, you watch some of those early comic movies and they're fucking god-awful, like Captain America. <laughs> it's not like today where you got these Marvel movies that can you can literally do anything. Look at fucking Doctor Strange. Yeah, that's, mm. this is very true. Yeah, so I think, like... Now, I mean, I wonder if he actually does watch any comic movies. I, I would assume not. I highly doubt it. He said he's 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 vehemently against them. But I was wondering, like, does he like any films? Is he just a bitter old guy? But he does. I like- imagine his house looks a lot like the Sanderson sister house in Hocus Pocus. <laughs> that was turned into a museum. Like he just has like weird books and dead shit on the wall and like a big cauldron over the fireplace. Oh yeah, that's and then a, a bunch of yeah. fucking wands. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's like, these fucking Hollywood people trying to ruin my fucking writing. Now I was, I was, I was curious. Does he like any films? Now he did. I did find an interview where he says the film Orphe. I guess is that how you say that? Orphe. Orphe is one of his favorites. It is French, uh, and this will be our one of our just Google it's for this week. Check this out. Type in Orphe. That's with two E's, O-R-P-H-E-E, mirror scene. And what he likes specifically about this, like I'm thinking maybe this guy just doesn't like CGI because in this film, they do a, this guy goes into like a mirror world and obviously this film was made in like the fucking 50s. Um, so they don't have... That's not really too up to the time. <laughs> they don't have CGI. But this is a really cool scene if you if you check it out on YouTube. The guy basically took a fucking tray of mercury. He took a tray, filled it with mercury, tilted the camera on the side so it looked like a mirror, and then the guy pushes his hands through it, and then it switches to a scene where he's walking through a hallway, a doorway, but it looks like he's going through a fucking mirror. It's fucking badass. And he said, I guess he's just more of a fan of like practical props than CGI. Practical magic also. <laughs> because, I mean, if you think about it, some of that CGI really doesn't hold up. And maybe he was a man before his time. Maybe he knew, hey, this CGI is not going to hold up. So League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a piece of fucking dog shit. He's not wrong in that thing. <laughs> and once again, they've ruined my works. But... I mean, as far as Watchmen goes for the future, uh, no real plans that I could tell. Um, Lindelof said that he would not be doing a season two. Um, I thought that they would based on the ratings. This was like one of HBO's biggest hits in the last couple years. Um, really? Yeah, but he like um, I was looking at like one of the last episodes got like I guess there was some show Pretty Little Lies that was really big and this one got more views than that. Um, hmm. I don't know, but I, yeah, it was a big hit. Um, but he's saying, hey, no plans for a season two. He actually confirmed that, and I'm sure I'm sure DC is going to continue to print, uh, release special editions, um, and. I'm, I guarantee we'll get a fucking reboot in like the next three years of the film. You know, 
They're doing fuck. Look at how many fucking Spider-Man films they've done in the past <laughs> ten years. Unfortunately, and it was two thousand nine when they did the last Watchmen film. I guarantee they're going to do another one coming up. Another one. But there you have it. Uh, Watchmen, check it out. Read it if you haven't. Uh, I want to cite uh, New York Times, The Vendetta Behind V for Vendetta, QZ.com, Why Alan Moore Wants Nothing to Do with HBO's Watchmen, EW.com, Watchmen Oral History, BleedingCool.com, Len Wein, The Outer Limits, and Rewriting Watchmen, and the comicbookconnection.com Watchmen feud with DC Comics explained. Um, so check out those articles if you want more information on Alan Moore and his history. And I mean that's it for me. What do you you guys got anything? What do we got? TLDL? Yeah, I feel like uh, TLDL Watchmen is the grown up Incredibles. <laughs> Love it. And Alan Moore is a wizard. (laughs) Okay, there we go. Um, You know, let us know if there's anything that uh, we didn't discuss that you want to hear or if if you got an episode that you want to hear. We're working on a uh, few more in the next couple weeks. Got some listener requests in and got some... uh, Spare time on our hands. Yep, got some spare time. So we got some (laughs) other stuff we're working on. So uh, stay tuned for that and uh, stay safe out there, guys. Signing off. Loyal Legion, uh, as always, thanks for tuning in to us. Uh, We appreciate you guys. As Ryan said, if you've got an episode you want to shoot our way, feel free to hit us up, podcastfromouterspace.com. You can slide in our DMs on the gram, podcastfromouterspace, or shoot us an email, podcastfromouterspace at gmail.com. Thanks again. Uh, shout out real quick to Rebecca Ramsey who uh, worked on the visual effects of Watchmen and some other superhero movies passed away recently I'm sure Mr. Moore would not be happy about that but pour one out for her other than that uh, thanks for all the love we've been getting stay strong during these tough times and uh, so long and thanks for all the fish <laughs> <laughs>